Welcome back to episode 40 of Between Sets. I'm your host, Tim Walcott, here with my co-host, Tyler Pattersonian. hey What? 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 Uh, we're here with Big Eric Bowman. Uh, Eric's been on here before. Uh, actually, I forget which episode it was, but this is his second appearance, I promise. He's in our old studio, back when we were poor and amateur. We had now we're uh, rich and professional. We're rich and, a- rich and amateur still, because... And we're not rich either. So, you know what? We're actually just poor and amateur still. We're actually the same. We just have three We're the exact of same. Time has just happened. That's about it. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Eric. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be back. Good stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad because this has been uh, this has been a roller coaster to get you back in. I know. We've been trying. We appreciate your uh, persistence. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we figured it out. Sometimes mm-hmm. the schedule on this thing can be a hassle, but we want to get you on soon as possible after the last one so mm-hmm. like, let's talk concussions everything concussions yeah so eric i wanted you to start off with obviously can you define what a concussion is just in case people out there don't know what a concussion is so the, the politically correct term for a concussion is actually what's called a mild traumatic brain injury yep so it's basically is caused by a blow to the head or forces transmitted indirectly to the head that can cause the brain to move around within the skull now, originally, the mechanism of injury of a concussion was considered to be like a blow-counter-blow or a coup-contra-coup, where the brain goes against one side of the skull, bounces off of it, and then bounces off the other side, and then comes back to a starting position. Now, there's research saying that may explain concussions to a point, but the big issue with concussions is actually an energy deficit. There's a lack of the energy molecule ATP being supplied to the brain which causes these issues and causes these symptoms. It can be from a coup contra coup or from other force mechanisms. Right. That's a, I, I actually didn't know that right there. So that's, yeah. a, that's a fantastic start. You, I, um, I thought it was obviously like, so it's obviously traumatic brain injury. I thought it was just from it kind of rattling back and forth, but I didn't understand the actual mechanism. It was just more, yeah, you have a headache because your brain hit your skull. Like, you know, there's a bruised area that like is clearly inflamed not operating as optimally i guess or yeah. uh, to your norm i suppose yeah by the way of putting it the way i explain it in the first few days after a concussion is basically you're trying to do you're trying to drive the texas on half a tank of gas oh. it doesn't work very well okay at least at least from where we are in, in southwest ontario canada yes yeah it doesn't really work out yeah i mean depending on what kind of car you're driving yeah is mo are most of the people you see with concussions car accidents Oh, we get a complex variety. Now, in my previous two jobs, I worked a lot with uh, more sport-related concussions. In my current job, most of the concussions I work with are related to uh, workplace injuries. So the mechanism of injuries can range from anything to from falls to motor vehicle accidents to someone just not paying attention and hitting their head on something to someone, uh, you know, being hit by a ball, someone being hit by an aggressive client. So as you know, to falls, it can be all over the place. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I was explaining to Eric before the podcast that I treated a lady that got a concussion from sneezing and she was getting something out of her cupboard and sneezed so hard that she hit her head off the cupboard and that's how she sustained her concussion. So you can definitely get a, a wild array of concussion um, injuries. Are pretty often, like, are you getting also people who have concussions and they come in with uh, related neck injury stuff? Yeah. 
That's probably the, the vast majority of people I see have uh, concurrent neck pathology. Mm. Is you know some of the mechanisms of whiplash and some of the mechanisms of certain concussions can be actually quite similar. Mm. Yeah, and sometimes some of the symptoms can be similar. Yeah, what are some of them? Like neck pain. Also, you can get a lot of, of headaches in different locations. Okay. You can get headaches from the, um, you know, a true neck-related headache can be more on the sides and the back of the neck radiating up to the back of the head. Okay. But that can also be concussion-influenced. Yeah. Yeah. And also a lot of what we call cervicogenic dizziness, which is dizziness with neck movement. That can occur with, with uh, both of them. Yeah. Which you would, which the... Lay, uh, the layperson, I guess, would say, I feel dizzy moving, looking around. Mm-hmm. You'd be dizzy with something. You'd feel very, like, faint and dizzy with movement. That's why, like, laying down or, like, focusing on one one spot on the wall would make you feel better because there's at least a little bit of focus on a, a specific object. And dizziness is, prob- is probably the number one or, n- or probably the number two uh, physical complaint that I see in people with uh, concussions, usually headache being number one. Sure. And dizziness can be due a whole due to a whole bunch of different things. It can be due to issues with cardiovascular dysfunction. Can be issues with uh, can be also sometimes a bit psychogenic in nature. Sometimes it can be significantly psychogenic in nature. Sometimes it's exertion based during cardiovascular exercise or during strengthening exercise. Sometimes it can be uh, more due to sometimes you can get associated vertigo. Yeah. You know, in certain types of vertigo, they're very position dependent. Mm. Sitting up, lying down, you know, transition can be problematic. Transitions from sitting to standing can also be problematic. So dizziness can be tricky because it's a very broad, very broad condition. Right. As are headaches, because I try, when I explain to patients, they go, do you think my headache is caused by, and they say one thing, and I go, maybe. It, could, it probably is a part of it, but you can get headaches from not drinking enough, not not drinking enough water, rather, drinking too much, <laughs> not, alcohol, drinking um, not eating enough, having Need low no blood working. sugar, being tired, being stressed, hitting your head, uh, yeah, muscle, so referral pain from the neck muscles. Like there's so many things that can cause a headache. So it's, mm-hmm. and concussions, definitely one of those things that causes headaches. And then I will get into this a lot, but when someone has a headache, management is the best thing. Try to figure out what the the thing was that induced that headache mm-hmm. and try to not do that, of course. Uh, and then when it's, it did happen, how can we manage that current symptom? So I, we're going to probably talk about that a lot during this concussion. I This mm-hmm. concussion talk, I imagine. Um, but yeah, I, I hope to learn some stuff that I never knew about concussions. First one being not enough energy to the brain. Yeah, I would have thought it was like more of an oxygen dependent. Like you're not getting as much oxygen through the brain. Well, it's kind of, it's an interesting thing because there can be some disruption of blood flow. And this is, I don't want to go too far down the physiology ladder because I'm not a a physiologist. I don't understand the mechanisms in a ton of detail. But the way it works in your energy systems when you're exercising, when you're, and even just for resting metabolism, oxygen is used in the process of breaking down glucose or sugar to produce ATP, the energy molecule. Yeah. So if you don't have the proper, if you have impaired blood flow, then that obviously impairs ATP or energy production. Yeah. Well, I would hazard to say that when you get a concussion, your brain rattles in your skull, you you have more blood in that area. So I guess my my knee-jerk reaction to being like, maybe your brain's not get, getting enough oxygen, you're getting an influx of blood and fluid. So I'm assuming you would get more. 
I guess. Yes. We don't have to. I'm more just speculating, Eric. I I don't. Again, you and I are not physiologists by any means. But yeah, and I yeah, yeah, and I again, I don't understand as much of the the biological mechanisms behind it. Right. It's interesting though, like having like an associated brain bleed that can be one of the big predictors of, of chronic symptoms. Yeah, with uh, with concussions. So yeah. it's interesting, you know, that you you brought that up. Definitely. Well, that's the first thing. So when I did my concussion course, the first thing that we learned that when you sustain a concussion, and you can go more into depth as well, Eric. But when you sustain a concussion, you should be taken off. Let's say you're on the field playing a sport of some kind. You should be taken off. And if you have an array of symptoms, instead of like, oh, my head just kind of hurts. Obviously stay off as well but if you're if you're not you're if you're stuttering if you lose some sort of function somewhere if you you know you kind of lose consciousness those are predictors to be like go to the hospital and what they'll do to check you for concussion other than the do you remember where you were what was the score of the game like uh, what day is it they would give you an mri slash cat scan and see if you have a brain bleed because that's a very bad thing when your brain is bleeding so yeah. yeah, I tell people a true concussion in isolation won't show up on imaging. Now, they are trying to come up with more sensitive methods of imaging that can detect some of this stuff, so I don't want to make too grandiose of a statement. It's more right now. But yeah, yeah it's, it's true like, right now. You yeah. know, a, a traditional, conventional MRI should not detect a concussion in isolation. Yeah. You know, so... And kind of going back to your, your point, too, when people get taken off the field, there are different tools that can be used like the scat sport concussion uh, assessment tool is a popular one that you see on the, yeah, the sidelines the, the scat the scat five is really I, big right I, now i yeah. was gonna say i think they're on number five I, yeah. when i was starting to learn about concussions i think it was number two or number three that they were on yeah that's one of the big things and the way that they diagnose one of the ways that they diagnose different severities of brain injury or what's called the uh, glasgow coma scale which is more based on pupils and, and cognitive responses to uh, certain stimuli right so in different gradings, I don't remember the scores off the top of my head. If it's a certain score, it's a mild traumatic brain injury, and if it's within certain scores, it's moderate or severe. Right. So when you kind of if you if people are wondering where where you, how you define mild to moderate to severe, that's usually how the most common way that they're uh, separated. Right. That's actually one of my questions was going to be that what would be the difference, and what do they mean by like a minor versus a major concussion, or kind of somewhere in between? Why is there so much in between you would think you have a concussion a really really not bad one and a really bad one so what's the <laughs> tim laughing at me uh so yeah so obviously mri findings would be a big a major concussion would you would have some sort of neurogenic problem as well like you could have some neuropathy going down the arms some loss of function somewhere a significant brain bleed i'd categorize that as a major concussion yeah I, would, wrong, I was gonna Eric, say but, i would consider that out of the scope of a concussion i would consider that a separate brain injury or a concurrent injury with the concussion yeah because i have because i have because we because i without trying to you know go in too far into detail here i we have worked with people who have had concussions with concurrent brain bleeds as part of their initial uh, injury okay now as a, also a disclaimer with this podcast i don't in my current job i don't see the routine run-of-the-mill concussions you know, the research says about 90% of concussions will recover fully within about three months. I see the ones that have already done therapy somewhere else and are still having a hard time. Yeah. I would almost categorize that as major concussion. This is more semantics, but I think, yeah. well, I think they would call it chronic concussion symptoms would be the, the more apt term. But I would say a major concussion is something you suffer for longer than that three-month period, yeah. whereas a minor one like would 
heal, whatever word you want to use there, in within that three month period, you would you'd get rid I of had, your symptoms. I had no idea that nine around ninety percent of concussions will recover within three months. Yeah, that's general. Yeah. That's those are the statistics based on the, the latest guidelines from wow. just over a year ago. Okay. Yeah, yeah and I, I think kind of going back to your point, Tyler. I think you know, and it is semantics. I just define it by symptom level. That's right. You know, the, the Rivermead questionnaire is probably the most common one that we use to assess baseline symptom level. And, like, the, the highest score is, six, like, the highest maximum symptom score is 64 out of 64. Okay. And wow. then you can gauge that on a scale for how symptomatic an individual is. Now, in terms of, like, post-concussion symptoms or post-concussion syndrome, I pe- people debate this. I use the term post-concussion concussion syndrome. Because, in theory, based on what has gone on, the brain should, in theory, be healed unless you're beating it up and banging your head against a whole bunch of things. Yeah, if you continue to give yourself more and more concussions. But it's like many chronic pain cases where you, the area, in theory, is healed. Right. But there's still residual symptoms. Yeah. You know what I, it's funny, with the semantics of like minor, moderate, major, I don't really... I don't say I don't care. It doesn't really, I don't need to know, I guess, will be the thing. Mm -hmm. Because I'm just going to ask you what your symptoms are and how severe you think they are. Mm -hmm. So I think regardless, like, if a doctor was like, they have a minor concussion, but they, like, they seem like it's major, like the actual patient themselves. So even the semantics of the word, like, we can hash this out for a while, Eric, but I think it's, it's probably... We'd probably do more justice going forward and talking about the actual management rather than the tiny bit of semantics yeah. of like, oh, minor, what would you do for a minor one? Because you shouldn't ask that. You should say, what you should, what should you do for a concussion? So don't even like put the semantics there. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you should say, what do you do for a traumatic brain injury? Because that's what a concussion is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even however minor it, it should be. So what are some typical symptoms that people should expect when they have a concussion? Um I always get a bit hesitant to say what people should expect because us maybe so what a bit is of typi- what is typical symptoms typical, rather, yeah. typical so, symptoms yeah. <laughs> are, I mean headache dizziness uh, concurrent neck pain um, lightheadedness fogginess uh, memory issues concentration issues uh, difficulty with uh, attention difficulty with multitasking difficulty with problem solving. Uh, also, some more psycho- psychological related symptoms like stress, anxiety, low mood, uh, poor sleep, or excessive sleep. Okay. Uh, yeah. A lot of excessive fatigue. Those are usually the main symptoms that I see. And, and of course, the, the concurrent neck pain. Right. I think if, if we had a lot of lay people in here right now, this is the question they would ask. And I, I'm actually curious to hear your answer as well. When someone gets a concussion, do you keep them up? And monitor them. Do you make them stay awake? Ooh, I was going to ask Because that. that's the common, like... That's I, changed, I, hasn't it? Has it? I actually haven't heard about it, so... I am not sure. Now, I am, as, as, as a disclaimer, too, I'm not involved with sports teams as, like, a sideline responder. So yeah. I'm not involved in the heat of the moment. I treat the aftermath of that stuff. For sure, yeah. And it's interesting. I'm not sure, to be honest, what the research guidelines say, what the policy is regarding people, keeping people up. I'm glad now that with professional sports teams it's not perfect but there's a lot better policy of keeping people off the field getting them professionally evaluated because what can happen is a condition called a second impact syndrome where if you have one concussion or an initial concussion and then you have 
one or more concussions within a short time span, the brain comes slow and you can die. Yep, for sure. That created what was called a Rowan's Law after a young female who had multiple concussions during sports and ended up dying. Yep. Imagine that. And that's where there's a lot of, this is a very controversial subject now, is when to keep someone in the game. When does a game, game, like in the literal term, it's a game, it's just a game. How, why would you keep someone on the field? Well, get them off the field. That's well, their brain and their life. But here's, here's not arguing against, but just saying it's not just a game. Two people, yeah. But you know what I mean? Like it is when you're in high school or even uh, university, maybe not even, depending on if you're in the States or in Canada right. and what sport it is. But like once you're in professional sports, it has nothing to do with a game. It's business. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, of course they're going to keep people in. Yeah. You know? But I would also, ha- like, just say any business in general, like, yeah. my dad's... I mean, the life I- is still important, for sure, because that's right. what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like... My dad's yeah. doing die company. You're going to make someone that just got a concussion yeah. work for the next four hours because their shift's not over yet? And be like, yeah. No, send them home, go to the hospital. Yeah. But, yeah. No, but, it's a but, good point. It's a good point, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, even with, uh, when you're talking about, like, second impact syndrome, is that what it's called? Yeah. The... Also, it kind of comes into play, too, related that I was just thinking of was uh, um, in the realm of uh, mixed martial arts and combat sports where people are doing weight cuts mm-hmm. and they're dehydrating their whole body, some of that coming from the cerebral fluid, from my understanding, and then not having time enough to rehydrate fully. And then that can increase the risk, from my understanding, for like easy, like lower impact causing concussions, or is that a thing? Yeah, that I'm not sure about. Okay. Yeah, that I'm not sure about. Yeah, I uh, all I all I've heard from is uh, Joe Rogan. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah those conversations about and, that, and hey, 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 talk. Hey, hey, I love Joe Rogan, but I don't <laughs> I don't always take his his health health and fitness related or the, the health no, but I will, uh, yeah, yeah, information yeah, verbatim. Yeah, and as you shouldn't because yeah. uh, he says it himself all the time. Yeah. He'll catch himself and go. By the way, I'm a moron. Like, he literally be like, this is not evidence-based. He's like, I'm just saying this. Like, he can just say it. Just because millions of people listen to him he's doesn't still, mean he's, he's right. Broken. Yeah, exactly. The problem with yeah. that is that he talks like it's gospel. That's And that. then he throws in the like, ah, I'm just joking, though. You know, it's yeah. like, you, it's, like it's, it's kind of like the yeah. people who are saying something offensive to someone, and then you get offended. And then they're and then they're like, it's just a joke. Oh yeah, you know, okay. as like that's kind of what Rogan does, where he's like, yeah, like uh, sugar's the devil, and you only burn fat with fat. And then he's like, but I don't know though. It's like, well, why'd you say that then? <laughs> <laughs> like you just said that. You can't like now go like backtrack. But I don't know though. Imagine him. And don't say that. He's had experts on both sides of like every coin. And imagine being like, which one do I think is right? Is it the one you just like better? That fits your bias more. Well, that's that's the problem sense. is if you don't know how to think critically and like have any type of background of like appraising scientific literature, then you're going to be like, yeah, everyone's got studies on their side. I guess I just pick which one wears better clothes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that is the problem. The one right? that's got a nicer smile. Yeah, and is nicer to me when we say hi and bye. Or the one that sells the least amount of products. <laughs> oh, true. That'd be a good metric, eh? <laughs> Um, yeah. Anyways, anyway, let's talk about the things that you do know. Let's talk about the things that we you for sure know. So, um, what are some common myths that surround concussion management slash treatment, and and what do you see, and kind of what's your approach? Run us through uh, concussion management. 
Uh, concussion management. Um, how how long do we have for this podcast? Six hours. Myths first, though. That's a two-part um, question, kind yeah. of. But, yeah. um, <laughs> concussion management needs to be very individualized. Now, where I work, we have a big for our, our complex uh, work-related injuries. We have a team of physio, chiro, occupational therapy, psychotherapy, slash psychology, and uh, kinesiology. So right. we have a very multidisciplinary system to address all the different areas going on. You know, the occupational therapy help a lot with pacing, help a lot with integration into activity, help a lot with uh, with more of the cognitive element of things, things like memory, concentration, multitasking, you know, stuff that's not necessarily in, in the physiotherapist ballpark. You know, right. I think one of the big myths I see with concussions is that everyone needs physio or everyone needs a generic plan or everyone should can get a generic plan. Well, everyone's batch of symptoms and things on the go can be very different. Exactly. You know, I see, I've seen some patients where I ask them, okay, what brings on your symptoms? Oh, I get flustered or, oh, I get stressed out and then my symptoms come on. Well, I can't really do much to help you with that. Yeah. There are some people I see where they don't have any neck issues. Their balance is fine. They're not too bad from a, a physical fitness standpoint. Not really too much I can do in that situation. Yeah. There's not like a really objective measure. It's more subjective and you're like, okay. Try not to get stressed, question mark. Like, yeah. what else do you say, right? The, yeah. And obviously the psychology, psychotherapy is huge for us because, you know, you know, as with chronic pain, psychosocial factors can be one of the big predictors of, of, of chronic uh, post-concussive symptoms. Now, the kinesiologist, or the kinesiologist and the physiotherapists and chiros, we tend to overlap a lot more. In contrast to a lot of, of centers, I look at you know, the dynamic between the physiotherapists and the kinesiologists, we're equal. We're both licensed, educated, health, competent healthcare professionals. You know, we each do our own thing, you know, and we cover the cardiovascular end, we cover the strengthening and conditioning end, we cover uh, the balance exercise end, we cover uh, vestibular and optic exercises. So to kind of explain what vestibular and optic exercises are, is that vestib the vestibular system is part of the brain that basically senses acceleration of the head relative to gravity. Yeah. And optic is referring to the eyes. Some people have issues with tracking different objects moving side to side or up and down or moving diagonally, such as an example would be if you're looking out the window of a car, looking at something as you're driving by would be an example of that. Yeah. And vestibular optic exercises are ways that you can retrain those skills, being able to track objects while moving your eyes and keeping your head still or moving your head and keeping your eyes still and fixated on one object. Yeah. So would you actually use that as a treatment style? Like yes. a rehab exercise would be that, right? Yeah. What we do is I use a test called the VOMS, vestibular, vestibular ocular motor screening, and it tests all these different combinations of movements and you get them to do 10 repetitions at certain speeds and rate their symptom levels. Right. I usually just, I, I kind of modify or kind of bastardize it a bit. I just ask, were there any increases in these symptoms? I do the same, yeah. And then I gauge and I try to have variants or modifications of those tests that I can use as exercises. So for an example, if someone had issues, you know, looking at a stationary object while turning their head back and forth at 180 beats per minute for 10 reps, I might have them do... 120 beats per minute for eight or 10 reps. Okay. And that's the exercise, you know, and uh, that's an example of those. And you can progress those in uh, in complexity and difficulty. Sometimes I, I sometimes like to combine them with balance exercises or with dynamic movement. Definitely. 
And, uh, I mean, if you take a course like something offered by Shift, you know, they're probably the best in the world that I've seen at uh, vestibular and optic exercises. Nice. And then we also do the physio, the physiotherapists and chiros also do, will do like concurrent neck manual therapy, neck exercise, because that can sometimes be an issue. Right. Sometimes to do the vestibular optic exercises, you have to have enough neck range of motion to make everything work. Sure. Yeah. So it's a very, it's very uh, broad based system that we use. We cover all the bases. We're very comprehensive with how we do things. And we try to make it very, and this is one of the big changes in my philosophy since starting work at Ultim is to try to make everything very, I hate the, I hate the term functional because I think it's a term that gets bastardized and it's a term that everyone uses, but there's no consistent definition for it. Sure. Bicep curls are not functional, Eric. <laughs> I like to make it very, like, task-based or task-specific, stuff that has a carryover to those tasks. Yeah. When it comes to balance, I'm more of a fan of, like, for instance, I'm more of a fan of dynamic balance versus sta- static balance, having to step over things, having to step around things, having to move with, with head turns, yeah. having to accelerate and decelerate, because that's going to correlate more to day-to-day stuff than standing on one foot with your eyes closed on a BOSU ball. Yeah. Here's the, here's the thing also. So I treat a like a wide array of concussion symptoms, concussion patients, that sort of thing. So the ages are different. The symptoms are different and that sort of idea. And I try to make the rehab fun. Does that make sense? Because a concussion really hurts. These people have a lot of headaches and they have this, this decrease in function in, in their respective lives. So I'll do stuff rather than like standing on one foot on a boosie ball. It's not so much fun because they're probably not going to be great at it if they just had a concussion. Mm-hmm. I'll like throw a ball to them and they have to catch it with one hand. They have to track that ball, their hand test their hand-eye coordination, and it's kind of fun. And I'm like, throw it at me. And they like throw it at me, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so I think making the rehab fun and enjoyable. Uh, and notice that, actually, well, I'll ask you now, but I noticed that you didn't really say like, oh, I'm going to, release a trigger point there and do this and put a, like a nerve stimulation on it's still a focus on like rehabilitation getting them there patient education mm-hmm. is there anything manual therapy that you do typically or anything that you learned and my second part of that question is what's the vertigo there's like a the crystals in here can you realign those crystals can sure. you talk about that First or second, I you choose. Um, we'll t- we'll talk about well, we'll kind of put this into hands-on therapy as a whole. Sure. And as as with my 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 uh, persistent the people with persistent pain I work with, I probably use manual or use hands-on therapy with maybe twenty to fifty percent. It's kind of a broad range, but yeah, you know, it depends on what's indicated. Yeah, I'll do some manual therapy on the neck. I might do. I hate the, I hate the term trigger point release, but I'll do it because I, I use the term because that's what everyone understands. Yes, I do you know, the same I might, thing. I might yeah. just I might just I, I call it just putting some pressure on some sore spots or some tender spots. <laughs> that's the probably more the politically correct, yeah, yes. scientifically correct term for it. You know, simple stuff like neck traction. I'm actually a big fan of a lot of thoracic manual therapy. Oh yeah, you know, there's some research that thoracic manual therapy can help with uh, shoulder and neck pain. Plus, everyone likes a good, likes to have their upper back cracked. Sure. I don't actually do, and I, I should say this as well, I don't actually do do manips. I don't have the formal training to do manipulations, but I find most people doing just a gentle push on their back 
Yeah. Not an aggressive thrust most of the time with a gentle push. Their back will probably go. You can do grade anyway. four. You can do up to grade four at a five. And the chiropractors yeah. can do the grade five, which would be the Phys- physios. Physios can do grade five too. It's just a, a, it's a controlled act. So you have to have the specialized training for it. And oh, okay. have the roster with the College of Physiotherapists of, Ontra- of yeah. Ontario. Okay. So I don't actually do grade five aggressive thrust manipulations. That's yeah. not in my training. Yeah. Because I learned up to grade four as well, like the yeah. oscillating grade four joint manipula- yeah. uh, mobilization, but I can't do a thrust either as well. Yeah. But. but I like to teach people stuff that they can do on themselves, like, you know, self soft tissue work with the tennis ball or stuff like that. Nice. You know. Why not, I, why I not a lacrosse ball, Eric? Come on. Yeah, you can use a lacrosse ball too, but I, I'd I rather tennis. prefer the tennis ball <laughs> for most people to start with. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I keep my neck manual therapy pretty simple. I don't do... Neck PAs, I've always found, especially having big hands, I find them just extremely awkward. So I just, they're just, they're not a bad technique. They're just not a technique I'm as, as comfortable with. Um, I do, yeah, and I do some neck, do some simple like neck, passive neck stretching as well. But I find most of the time, I, it's one of those things I'd rather they stretch their own necks. Yeah, sure. Well, I think it's more of a use of your time to do the other things, and they can spend their own time stretching if they, yeah. if you deem it necessary, or if they deem it necessary as well. Yeah. As far as the talking about crystals, yeah, there's certain uh, <laughs> there's certain uh, part of the vestibular system that has crystals that detect fluid acceleration. Yes. And sometimes in the condition called BPPV, benign uh, paroxysmal positional vertigo. Sometimes the mechanism is, and there is actually research on this, the crystals become dislodged. There is research on yes. this? Yes. Okay. And yeah. there is a, a technique that you can do called the, uh, there's a couple different assessment techniques you can use. You know, there's a Dick's Hall Pike, there's a head thrust test, there's a few other tests you can do. And based on if they're having a feeling of the room spinning, you can do those tests, and depending on what's called nystagmus, which is where the eyes beat to one side or the other, or beat in a rotational fashion, depending on the direction of the nystagmus, you can reposition their head and neck into other directions. And actually, the theory is that it repositions the crystals back in place. Yeah. Now, with a true uh, a true BPPV, those techniques are effective over ninety percent of the time within three times wow. or less. Yes, this has actually been quite well documented. Now, I find a lot of the people that I work with have, I, I call it pseudo-vertigo. Like, it's not really, it's dizziness, but it's not a true clear-cut yeah. vertigo uh, case. So, I find I, I do use those techniques from time to time, but I don't use them super often. Yeah. Well, here's the, I think the question is, even I would think this, if you can shake them back into place, how would they shake, how were they dislodged? You know, can you just, like, shake your head and dislodge them as, like, the... You know, should people be scared about that? Obviously not, but I'm just saying, like, it's kind of a valid question to be like, how are they? Do you think you it could be shaken in without a specific manipula uh, manipulation? Do you think like I don't know? And I'm not a hundred percent sure how the mechanism works because you can have it incur fair, occur without without trauma. Sure. And you actually, when you do have it, the research says you have a higher likelihood of having it in the future. Okay. So that, that part of it, again, that's another situation where I don't 100% understand the biological mechanisms behind what's going on. Yeah. I just think, okay, this treatment seems to be effective in this certain situation, so let's go for it. Definitely. If it's not a true, if it's not a true uh, suggestive uh, BPPV, you know, there's not that feeling of like the room spinning around you and that kind of thing. 
then I'm a lot more hesitant to do that test. Yeah. Because it just makes people really dizzy. It makes people really uncomfortable, and the, the positioning stuff doesn't have the same benefit. Definitely. Is there anything that you give to people, kind of everyone with a concussion, I guess? Do you give everyone home care, and is it sort of generalized, or is it more specific? And whatever the answer is, what would you give people as home care is basically my, my the bulk of my question there. As far as stuff, I mean, simple stuff like neck stretches, self soft tissue work you can do over the, the shoulder blades and, like, the trapezius muscle. You know, stuff you can do with the tennis ball I like. Again, depending on tolerance. Some people like it. Some people get flared up by it. Sure. You know, scalp massages I find can be helpful for relieving headache symptoms, just doing a few minutes of massage over the sore spots. Yeah. But it's another case where some people take it too far. Some people are spending all day rubbing on their forehead, and that might be a bit counterproductive. Yeah. Plus, you also have a lot of bruising. <laughs> well, that's what I, I... I was joking about the lacrosse ball earlier. I find it very strange that people want that really deep stuff because the places that you're putting the tennis ball slash lacrosse ball do, doesn't need to be deep. There's a like a small layer of tissue between your skin and your bones. So mm-hmm. how hard do you need to push your tissue into your bone so i think a tennis ball is if you're going to do it on yourself definitely a tennis ball or just like your fingers and just kind of do some circular motions at at the tolerance you enjoy but i don't think the i don't think the depth really matters as long as it seemingly does what you're trying to accomplish without an increase in pain of course yeah and like bruising and stuff like that so i i agree people can take things way too far if you give them rain so that's why i was wondering if you have you know, do you give people vestibular, like kind of proprioception training to do on their own? Or do you think they could take it too far and you want, do you want to manage it? I'll do vestibular optic exercises. I mean, ones you can do without any equipment or maybe with any sheet of paper stuck up against the wall, taped up against the wall or stuff like that. Right. Proprioception training is, this, this is probably another discussion for a whole nother podcast. It's tough because proprioception is a very big fancy word that a lot of people throw around and I don't think we've ever really figured out how to objectively really assess it and also how to objectively improve it within a lot. There are certain tools we have this where I work where it's actually a helmet with a laser on it. Oh yeah. And you can actually have them close their eyes and, and point the laser toward or move their head and neck to point the laser ah, toward specific targets. That's cool. You can do that with a neck. You can also do something similar with like upper anyone with upper limb issues to help uh, retrain body awareness in that way. But it's, it's a construct. I don't know if there's a really good way to measure proprioception. As yeah. a skill? Yeah. More so than just a definitive term? Yeah. Because you can define it, but you mean from like a skill perspective. Like, it can't, yeah. is, can we quantify improvements here? Yeah. Yeah. That helmet thing's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. stuff. Like, you're not flexing on your friend being like, check out this proprioception, bro. Like, it's not a thing that you could measure. Yeah. Whereas, like, you could measure a 500-pound deadlift compared mm-hmm. to your buddy's 200-pound deadlift, I guess. You can. But, um, so, I guess to wrap up that thought there, do you give people vestibular, uh, vestibular ocular training at home? Yeah, I'll have them do exercises at home. That's no problem. Nice. Is there, again, uh, to not trying to generalize too much, but is there, if someone... If someone does have a concussion, do you think there's a general approach you can kind of take? No. Yeah. I know. Same here. I just, I don't know. I was wondering if you had something, but. No, because there are some patients that I work with where, again, there's issues are mainly psych and mood based. There are some patients that have a lot of everything on the go. There's one person I worked with who the testing was fine. 
get her walking on a treadmill, she's fine, but get her doing elliptical or get her doing like an assault air bike where it's arms and legs going, mm-hmm. she's she's flared up. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's, it's everything's very case specific. Definitely. I think it, it I think it's important to outline so when I did the course it's very important to outline how to progress how quickly to progress mm-hmm. so there is no one amount of time that you should take to progress in no. a concussion it is what they what you typically look for is can you do like mundane daily tasks so just <clears throat> just getting up maybe do you read do you do stuff like that do you live your life and if after 24 hours of of it you don't get an increase in symptoms for another subsequent 24 hours you can move on to the next stage right Mm -hmm. um so there's kind of this like five tiered approach that i learned that the second one would be can you do like light cardiovascular training can you walk on a treadmill for half an hour sorry can you go for a walk for half an hour can you do a little bit more than just the mundane daily tasks and again, within 24 hours, in a 24-hour period, do you not have an increase of symptoms, a crazy mm-hmm. flare-up? And then another subsequent 24 hours, do you not have flare-up there? Um, and then you can continue on to like a little bit more like skill-based stuff. So like maybe yeah. a little bit more resistance training. Or if you're an athlete, get back on the practice field, right? Uh, or, you know, and then it, it kind of goes without saying, or sorry, it goes to say that when it comes to the body, Every therapy I've ever seen now, and my whole, like, a lot of my treatment style is this, is progressive overload in every single aspect of your life, right? So with concussions, I want you to progressively overload what your brain can handle, mm-hmm. right? Whereas, and then, you know, in rehab for a tissue, progressively overload what the tissue can handle. And then in stress, progressively overload your lifestyle or your your things you want to do, reading more, uh, going out and seeing your friends more progressively overload yourself there so you get better over time rather than like trying to get better right away mm-hmm. right yeah it's a process that cannot be rushed now the difference is and especially with a lot of the population i work with i tell them you're going to have some symptoms when you do an activity some people say you know it shouldn't the symptoms shouldn't increase by more than two out of ten i just say they should just increase a small amount that's it, yeah. And they should come down shortly after the activity is done. I don't like specific numbers because I find people just tend to fixate on them too much. You know, I, especially people that are more symptom vigilant. But it's, it's very, same with, with uh, activity prescription for people with chronic pain. I've found I've had to really adjust the approach to the individual. Some people are okay pushing the envelope a little bit further. You know, them I just tell them, you know, work into a symptom level to success, acceptable. Some people are very, um, the people that are either very anxious or the people that tend to overdo it all the time, I give them more of a specific number and activity cutoff. Yeah. You know, I don't like the saying that, you know, symptoms shouldn't go above 4 out of 10 or 6 out of 10 because when I'm working with people that are starting at 7 out of 10, that doesn't work so well. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It should be hard. Rehab is hard. Getting better at something is hard. It should be. Yeah. Well, it needs to be relative to where they're at, right? Right. Exactly. You know. No, it's very true. Um, yeah, I, I don't think there's that many, like, myths. Because there's, in in our, in our other topics that we've talked about on Between Sets, we there's usually a lot of common myths that mm-hmm. surround the, whatever the topic was. But with concussions, there's not really one. Uh, I think one might be 
And one of my questions to you, Eric, was going to be like, why do you think there's been such a huge spike in, in concussion interest? And I think there's been a the whole CTE thing. I forget what the CTE acronym stands for. Uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Encephalopathy. That's I'm never going to remember that word. That's the big. That's the big fancy term. Yeah. So I think it started when, and this is you know my my closet wrestling fan coming to the surface again. <laughs> I think the true start of it was in 2007 when Chris Benoit, who was a former, oh. was a WWE wrestler. He was a, actually Canadian. He was a, the world champ at one point. He he killed his wife and killed his kid and then hung himself. Oh my God! This was back in 2007, and it was like, and it, it and it hit me hard because he was one of my favorite wrestlers, and I loved the guy. You know, but he, uh, but it created a huge firestorm for for uh, world wrestling entertainment, trying to figure out what was going on, what caused this stuff. And he was, I think, really the first, first uh, one of the first uh, documented CTE cases among a, a popular. I guess you could consider him a professional athlete. And then after that, a lot of the uh, big NFL cases came up. Yeah, and then. Um, with uh, CTE and a lot of suicidal ideations and suicide successful suicide attempts in that population, and then I think the big thing that really started that really piqued the concussion interest was the Sidney Crosby situation, where Sidney Crosby, who's the best hockey player going in his time period, and I would argue the best hockey player between about 2005 and about 2018-19, has you know, was off for quite a long duration of time with concussions. So I think that really piqued the interest in concussions. It's one of the most commonly researched health issues over the last decade. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. But And it's interesting because there's not a lot of effective measures to prevent concussions. No. There's a little bit of research. Chris Beardsley had a good uh, review on his uh, strength and conditioning research resource. I'm not sure if, if it's still there. I'll... I'll send a link to you guys so it can be accessed. There's a little bit of, very little bit of research suggesting that neck muscle training, neck muscle strengthening can be helpful with concussion prevention in mm. uh, contact sport athletes. I'm actually more of a fan of, with a lot of people I work with, with chronic neck pain, both with or without concussions, of neck muscle strengthening versus just the traditional stretch, 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 stretch manual therapy approach. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of research that eccentric strengthening can be helpful with uh, improving flexibility so i try to do a lot of eccentric trap rhomboid strengthening to help with uh with getting a lot of that tension out of there right now the the big question and this is probably the biggest myth i see with concussions is helmets everyone's like oh they should have been wearing their helmet or that kind of thing and there's review after review i've read that shows that helmets don't really affect concussion rates like why would they when you really think about it, you're yeah. still hitting the helmet. Your brain goes dunk dunk. Well, and it depends also what in what activity you're talking about too, right? Yeah. Because if you compare rugby and football, foot the having the helmet increases the likelihood of of concussions because now you can use your head. Yeah, I was going to say more. there's a bit of research that says having uh, having concussions can increase risk taking behavior in football players. Mm. Mm. Yep. Yeah, now there's now before anyone listens to this podcast and says, Oh, Eric told me not to wear a, I didn't need to wear a helmet. Well, no, <laughs> helmets can be very or extremely important with presenting preventing other forms of skull and head injuries. So uh-huh. you know, you still obviously gotta Yeah, you know, when you're riding your bike, please wear your helmet. When you're playing hockey, please wear your helmet. Absolutely. But they just don't have that big of an effect on concussions. Now there are some people trying to come up with helmets that can reduce concussion incidence and severity, but that's very early research for the time being 
Yeah. I'm sure if we sat down and had this podcast five, ten years from now, we'd have a lot more different information to talk about. Yeah, kind Probably. of just still scratching the surface with this stuff, eh? Mm-hmm. Like still pretty early on. And I think the big, I think the biggest thing you can do with concussions, obviously positional awareness, you know, making sure you're not hitting your head on, uh, on uh, any surfaces that you're working in or around. And I think, and this is more opinion-based, this isn't research-based, I think just trying to cut down on dirty hits, hits from behind. You know, everyone worried about fights in hockey, well, a lot of times fights were kind of their way of diffusing the situation that got out of hand. You take away the dirty hits, you take away the need for a fight, and then you take away the chance of someone getting hurt in a fight. Mm. I don't think that, you know, you can't really prevent concussions or sports injury as a whole. I had a, a person I worked with a while back said, you know, you should take out all the sports, or they should take out all the sports that have concussions while you take out hockey, baseball, football, basketball, soccer, soccer, volleyball, rugby. You can get her playing combat sports. You can get her playing badminton. Yeah. You can get her playing chess if someone comes up and just knocks you out. So you, you don't can, let that person affect policy change. That's so you can never, bad idea. You can never prevent them. You just try to man, effectively manage them. Yeah. Well, yeah. I always get triggered by the word prevention because you can't prevent anything. You can reduce. You it's, can reduce it's, it's, that. It's injury or accident reduction. It's never prevention. You can't. I mean, yeah. you can only do so many things when a three hundred and ten pound guy runs you over. Yeah. yeah. Don't get. Try not to get hit by a three hundred and twenty pound dude. That's pretty much it. And yeah. I think it comes down to kind of the other big myths I see with concussions are on one extreme that oh you can just suck it up and play again. We talked about that with the uh, second impact syndrome, or the other myth that I see more in the persistent cases that I see where you're just in a dark room for forever. Yeah, you're in a dark room with sunglasses and not, and not doing a lot. You have to gradually, you know, great. You know, some people use the term graded exposure. Gradually expose yourself to more stimulating environments and accumulate and what your brain and your body adapt to those. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think that's, if I were to say one thing is the best thing, I think graded exposure is the one driving factor between that is a metric to someone's success slash like improvement of some kind. So, and I, I think, I think slowly increasing your activity levels. You guys asked me last time I, when I was here, what is the one universal truth across all these populations? And, and that's about the one thing is to slowly increase your activity levels. Yeah. Some people criticize Tim Gabbett's work on sports research and sports injuries and the acute to chronic workload ratio. You could argue that the equation and the statistics and that, but I don't think it takes away from the intent of it, which is to slowly increase your activity level. Yeah. I don't know if anyone could... I'm willing to hear it, but I don't think anyone could argue that fact, really. Any person with well the specifically the acute to chronic workload ratio my understanding is there is there is a great really good argument against it specifically oh really yeah oh yeah i think it just got just but i but ex- wait, it just got ex- very extrapolated right yeah and what you're talking about the intent there you yeah. it's tough to argue with the, and i don't the, think the people intent, arguing the opposite the are arguing fine. that they're not arguing yeah. the intent they're arguing specifically using ac cw or whatever like to get to use that specifically because whatever the percentage and they yeah. use a certain thing. It's like 1.2 follow. to 1.5. Something like that, yeah. So they they argue that, and it seems to be pretty strong. But yeah, but yeah, the intent is there. Yeah, and I think that makes the whole the principle makes sense. Yeah, and I think it's smart. 
And I mean stuff you can progress. I mean you can progress cardiovascular exercise both in terms of, of uh, duration and, and intensity. You can progress balancing exercises. I don't really progress volume. I just progress difficulty. Sure. You know, I find most of the people I work with usually three to six weeks, you're usually getting a pretty solid improvement in balance. And it's at the point where, okay, it's not a, to where I'm concerned about you having falls. Obviously, if you're someone who started really low, it's going to take a lot longer than that. Yeah. But you can kind of focus on other things. Mm. I don't kind of going back to the balance thing. I do worry about static balance to a point. Like if you stand on one leg and can only do it for two seconds, well, that's a bit of a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. But I don't necessarily worry if you can't stand for 30 seconds with your eyes closed on a one leg on a foam pad. Yeah. <laughs> I think about it the exact same way because I, I think about it with, again, the word functional is not the best word. I, I completely agree it's been bastardized. Yeah. But it's the... what. Like, what's the carryover into your actual function, your actual life? Mm-hmm. Like, when do you ever stand on one leg for 30 seconds? Why would that ever be a thing you do? You know what it is? Yeah. You know what it is? Functional. What pe- Functional got used uh, unnecess- uh, inappropriately in place of transferability. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what it is. Specific- That's what people are talking Specificity about. is the best term that I can think of it. Yeah, yeah, specificity and transferability. That's because you're looking for that transferability mm-hmm. to the specific task. So, like, because functional is everything. Yeah. So, like, it's too general, ambiguous, gen- you know, of a term, yeah. so. Yeah, and it's and and uh, it's interesting, too, where I work. Like, some people have, some of our staff, particularly our kinesiologists, like, as far as I'm concerned, we got the best kinesiologists I've ever seen and I've ever known. They are very good with like work and task specific exercises, exercises that are very similar to or mimic specific tasks, like like problem solving, doing management tasks mm-hmm. on a computer, for instance. Yeah. Whereas, or you know, simulating if you're you know a janitor cleaning a, a floor space. Whereas for me, I am not work. I'm not creative. I'm not savvy with that kind of stuff. I pick more general exercises that'll carry you over. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff that involves pushing, pulling, carrying, single leg balance, um, dynamic balance, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, so that's kind of understanding my role. Okay. But I think, you know, in terms of, of and even and even for in terms of functional or transferability, it doesn't need to necessarily look like the activity that you're doing. Right. You know, there's some reason, Brett Contreras, this was probably three, four years ago, published uh, or put a thing on Facebook citing a study that showed improvements in balance and mobility with the leg press training in seniors. Yep. Now, yep. people, the leg press is, you know, not is kind of a shunned exercise by people who are more like free weight, you know, and people who are sport coaches, but it pr- improved balance, improved mobility, improved overall fitness. How can Which we doesn't say that's surprise not me at all. How yeah. can we say yeah. that's not a functional exercise? Yeah. yeah. I love the leg press for everybody. Yeah. Leg I wish we had best. space for one here. Yeah, Lake Bruce would be great. I have to take take over the podcast studio. I know, no more it's sets, perfect right? in here. The yeah. entire thing. So yeah. I so I tend to struggle. I I always cringe a little bit inside when I hear people use the term functional. Yeah, I think a better term is transferability or specificity. Yeah, I'm with that. Yeah, but it's funny. With I loved your point just now because I was going to bring that up too. We don't really have. There's no research to suggest that one exercise, one yeah, one exercise is superior to another. So, for example, doing simple walking versus 
for back pain, for example, mm-hmm. walking or just like squatting, deadlifting, just the, you know, the compound movements is the same, if not better in some instances and worse in, in others than bird dogs, like all those really specific ones. Yeah. So it's kind of to your point, like it doesn't need to be so specific, but I do like to make it as transferable to their life as possible. Yeah, it's, it's goal specific. Now, exactly. And I said this a bit, I did uh, Greg Layman's course uh, a couple months ago. Reconciling biomechanics? Yeah, reconciling yeah. biomechanics with pain science. And it was a phenomenal course. And the thing that I really, one of the things I really appreciated about Greg is I, I do see without trying to get in too much trouble with the people online, I see, and yes, I'm, I'm strawmanning it. I'm being very stereotypical. I see some people say, oh, it doesn't matter what exercise you do for back pain or that just get them moving. Well, it does matter. It does sure. matter based on what you can tolerate. Some people tolerate standing exercises more. Some people tolerate sitting exercises more. Some people, some people really tolerate the McGill Big Three and they do really well with them. You know, it also depends on what school specific. If I'm getting people towards a physical job or getting people towards a sport, I better make them prep to tolerate the demands of those activities. So that's where I disagree a bit with some of the, and it's not the, the fault of the research, it's the fault of the way a few, not everyone, a few people apply it. Yeah, their actual saying, interpretation of the that, research. Oh, it doesn't matter what exercise you do, just keep them moving. Well, it does matter based on tolerance and based on goals. Yeah, you're not going to get everyone to deadlift just because you have the bias in deadlifting because someone's going to get, someone's going to really hurt the, like not hurt themselves, but um, have an increase of symptoms or maybe an increase in pain or not be able to deadlift. Mm-hmm. As much as I love the deadlift and bias towards it as well, but like it's not like I use it every time. I use the McGill Big Three all the time because it's an easy thing someone can do for themselves, no problem. Mm-hmm. I'm like, here, it's, you know, I've seen a lot of people that it worked on and if it doesn't work, we'll change it up. If it's too easy, we do something harder. If it's, if it's too hard, we do something easier. Simple idea. And the tough thing with back pain and with concussions from a research perspective, and I struggle with this from a clinical application perspective, is it's a broad population. How do you define your average person with back pain or with a concussion? You don't. <laughs> you know. That's it. You don't. You yeah. Know, you see the people that a week or two after a concussion, I just got a little headache. And then you see the people that barely stumble into your clinic and they're hanging on the walls and they got the sunglasses Ugh. on and, Ugh. you know. Yeah. Uh. Tim, any other questions about concussion that you can think of that you want to ask Eric? I don't think so. Yeah. I threw our post up a little too late to grab some, but yeah, yeah, that's okay. If we have right. any follow-ups, we'll uh, we'll definitely be having you on a third time. So, is there anything you think we've kind of missed out on here? Because I, I really want to touch the points of like what a concussion is, um, your process of going through it, yeah, actual yeah. management and and the the pros and cons to certain things. Or, but I think we yeah. covered a ton. I it's interesting to to think about it in different ways. Yeah. I think it's yeah. one of those things that like, since even the experts don't know a ton about it, the general population knows even less. Yeah, so I think it's, it's kind of a cool area to, to, to pick your brain on just because, you know, you may not call yourself an expert, but you get exposed to it more, much more than myself or the average Joe. So yeah. And myself even. And yeah. I'm, I deal with people with concussions, so. And concussion management can be a bit of a wild west. You know, I've done a few different courses that have very different formats. There's very different approaches. Mm. You know, and you try to just take as much as you can from each of those that applies to the the people that you work with. Plus, I mean, I work with a fantastic group of people. Like, I can't imagine, I couldn't imagine treating concussions without having our, our wonderful occupational therapist, Aaron. I can't imagine trying to get people ready for work without our kinesiologists. I can't imagine not having the, the psych, psychology support. 
mm-hmm. on our hands because it's it's everyone can be so different and so complex and you know there are so many different factors that can contribute to recovery contribute to poor recovery that we need to have a, a you know and not everyone needs a multidisciplinary approach per se but I think these more complex cases that I get most of them the vast majority mm-hmm. of them need a complex approach. Yep. It's like I said in my last part, in the last time I was here, the complexity of the program needs to fit the needs to fit the complexity of the individual. Mm. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Highly I, agreed. I think uh, that being said, when we have we have you on next, I'd love to get um, someone else on who shares uh, similar views or experiences as you do as far as persistent pain, and maybe mm. get into the the uh, meat and potatoes about that. Yeah. Uh, that'd be a good one. Just because that one, speak of complex, that one is a heavy hitter. Yeah. And I and I think as, as, as great, you know, as, as as complex as this job has been and as challenging as this population has been, I'm grateful for the, the great staff and, and management that I work with and for and for the learning and the growth opportunities because I think as hard as it's been and, you know, there are some things I've struggled with and there are some things that I'm still working on and some things that I've had to learn. And I think it's important to be transparent about this because working with people with persistent pain is hard and it can mm-hmm. sometimes take a, take a toll on you from a, a mindset perspective. And it's not an easy thing. It's not as straightforward, I think, as a lot of people portray it online because there are so many different complex personal variables, especially when dealing with, with uh, work, work workers' comp-related injuries that feed into what goes on. Agreed. But yeah. I also think that it's important, you know, I think that the, you know, you get a lot of learning and growth from working with this population compared to working with, uh, working with your traditional private practice demographic where 70, 80, 90% of them are full recovery within a few months. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so they each, they each have their own trade-offs. Yeah. And maybe I'm biased because I have a tendency to get myself with these hard populations. I did ICU in school. I did home care in school. So yeah. Yeah. Well, we need, first of all, we need people like you, Eric, because uh, it, it's such a hard job. Even my own ego, when I can't help someone within a yeah. two month time period, it's, it's, uh, it's hard. It's just hard to wrap your head around. You're trying to help them. Like I'm sure you and I share the same goal mm-hmm. as well as Tim. We're only trying to help people. Yeah. That's it. And when we can't, we take it really hard as well. Right. Mm-hmm. We're trying really hard. We promise that's why constantly doing research, constantly me and Tim having these guests on so we can learn as well. So it's kind of this like selfish approach where we get people on to, I want to learn as much as I possibly can so I can uh, put it in with my patient's treatment planning so I can get them better over time, like quicker if I possibly can. But yeah. So kudos to you, dude. That's that's impressive work you're doing. And I, do we got about five minutes or? Yeah. Yeah. A couple minutes. Yeah. And I, and I have learned a lot because I struggled a lot with, you know, the emotional aspect of, of working with a complex population. And I feel like it's just taken really the last two months to really, really the last two or three months to get really comfortable with that. St- I'm still, I'm still learning a lot on how to have difficult conversations. That's an area that I'm by no means, I think qualified enough to talk to, to talk about. But I think the things that I've had to learn are like, I've read a, been reading a series of books called difficult conversations and crucial conversations. And one of the, th- the quotes from Difficult Conversations, and I, I posted this uh, on Facebook probably, was, I think, a week or two ago, is your job is not to make everything perfect or to make everything right. Your job is to do the best you can with what you what you uh, have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That's know, true. there are going to be things like beliefs and psychosocial factors and attitudes that you're not going to be able to change no matter what approach you come at, because sometimes patients aren't ready. Sometimes there are other previous cultural biases. Sometimes there are other factors that are just so in, ingrained that you can't always change them. And sometimes there are major psych factors that are outside of your control. You know, you can't so con control someone who's going through grieving or financial stress or that kind of thing. Yeah. So I think that was one of the biggest things I, I had, you know, I think that statement, I don't think I've ever seen a statement sum up rehab for people with persistent pain or persistent concussion syndrome like that. It's not your job to fix everything or to make everything perfect. It's your job to do the best you can do. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. You Which know, is, again, hard from an ego standpoint because you just want to help them out fully, right? And another thing that I had to learn was to give up the allure of being super therapist. Like I spoke on the pod, on the first part of the last podcasts or the last podcast on, you know, my experiences with a learning disability. And I always felt very indebted to the, the people that have helped me and still continue to help me for, move forward in my career. And I think I felt that because of their efforts, I felt like I kind of had to be super therapist mm -hmm. because of that. And probably also because of the circle online and the circle of these top professionals that we associate with. And I think once I got knocked myself down a couple notches and I, I don't like to think of myself as an egotist but when I kind of knocked myself down a few notches and gave my dropped the illusion of trying to be super therapist I think my stress level went down quite a bit definitely mm -hmm. and I felt a lot more a lot more for the most part happy with where I was at yeah 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 I think I think that's important to understand your limitations not limitations but your uh, capabilities rather mm-hmm and do the best with those capabilities you possibly can and be okay with being wrong, be okay with not being the super therapist. Um, I mentor a few students, mm -hmm. a few massage therapy students, and I tell them that all the time. Like I, they go, wow, you're like, you're so smart. You're, you must be killing it. And like they see my social medias and I'm like, well, no, I, I mess up a lot. I'm wrong a lot. Or, you know, yeah. I, I don't know a lot rather. Um, and they're like, really? I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a we know like 1%. Mm -hmm. you know and even like the experts we just don't really know so it's uh, it's important to realize like it's not your fault we're not knowing mm -hmm. it's not there's not something you don't know because you're lazy and you just haven't learned it it's because we haven't learned it at all and there's only mm -hmm. so much time in the day to learn these things like if you're obsessed with concussions right now you're gonna be really you let's say really good at concussions right now but then you're not gonna be learning the million other things you could be learning too mm -hmm. so and I think, too, it's tough because I think, especially when you work with, with chronic pain or chronic post-concussive syndrome, so much of it is communication-based, which is the stuff they don't really teach in school. So you either have it or you don't. Mm. Yeah. You know, and how do you, how do you learn, to, you know, how do you to learn how to deal with a, a super angry or super emotional distressed patient that's got 20 million things on their plate? Yeah. You know, that's not stuff they teach you in, in physio school or, or yeah. even if you're on a placement, if you're lucky enough to get there. You know, and that's one of the things that motivates me to share my stories and my experiences because, yeah, I've accomplished a lot. I've also had my mistakes and my failures and setbacks along the way. But I think if I can help someone else not make those mistakes or someone get there a little, less, a little faster or with a bit less grief, mm -hmm. then I think I've done my job. Yeah. Well, that's, that's human evolution right there. Mm -hmm. I've made a lot of mistakes, and here's how I did it. So you start from my end point. And then we just keep starting from other people's endpoints and we just get better and better and better. That's it. That's what's up.
That's what's up. <laughs> Eric, anything else, my man? Um, I think the biggest thing to reinforce is that concussions just they need a individualized management system. I always, Shocker. I always uh, <laughs> get concerned when I hear people getting advice about concussions from their coach or their family member because I joke around. Everyone who's a football fan is a concussion expert. <laughs> everyone, everyone, who, everyone who's a yeah. hockey dad is a concussion expert. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you need yeah. to have the, the specific training and know what you're doing. Yeah. Sure. So that being said, I was just about to say the the practical thing to take out of this podcast is go find someone that has at least a bit of formal training. If you are unsure at all, this is to coaches, people, kids, whatever alike. If you're unsure if you have a concussion or not, go see somebody. Take yourself out of the game. Go talk to Eric. (laughs) Go talk to Eric. That being said, where can people find you, Eric? So people can find me. I work at Ultim Health in Cambridge. It's just a, is Cambridge, Ontario, Canada, not Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, or Cambridge. In, yeah, we got some global UK. listeners. You better uh, specify. Yeah, we do. So yeah. we're across the street from uh, Cambridge uh, Memorial Hospital on Highway Eight. So and that's and people can find me on Facebook or Instagram, Big Eric Bowman, Twitter, Eric Bowman zero three. I'm not near as active on Twitter as I am on the other two uh, Good, it's locations. Trash. Or people can find me at, at Big Eric Bowman at gmail.com. Nice. That'll all be oh. in the show notes as well. You know where else people can find you? April eighteenth at the twenty twenty Vault Barbell Spring Open at Parkwood Gardens Church in Guelph, Ontario. Yep, I'll be doing a bench only there. <laughs> yeah, getting, getting back. We'll in, be there yeah. too. Come say hi to us. I'll be getting. Uh, Jared will be the, there. Getting back in the game for the first time. Yeah, that'll be a fun here. time, man. I'm gonna bring a couple clients with me that want to experience the meat environment. So yeah, meet meet be fun. meet environments are is is so fun doing the meets and meeting the people. I I, I said to a gym owner I was talking to a few weeks ago. I said I probably enjoy that as much if not more than the actual weight that's being lifted. Yeah, I'm I think I'm at the point now where with my career and my professional lifestyle and probably going to stick to mostly bench only meets for the time being just because they're a lot easier to train for and they're a lot easier to recover from mm-hmm. you know i find with full meets i find i need to basically have two or three months where i can just you know for lack of a better term train my balls off and recover really well yeah. to perform at the meet and also have a, a month of no hard training to recover afterwards yeah you know, so that's just kind of the way it goes. I, the thing I like too about bench only meets is that they're fairly short. You're in and out in a couple hours or so plus weigh-ins. It's yeah. you know you're not there all day, which mm-hmm. for me having a bunch of other obligations on the go, that's also a big consideration to take into account. Yeah, agreed. All right, that's awesome. Well, Eric, thanks again for coming, man. This was awesome, and I hope that people with a concussion or if they you know someone that they know has a concussion can learn something from this because this was. Uh, Super informative for even myself, and I've done mm-hmm. a concussion course, so that's incredible. Yeah. Thank you, yeah, man. Thanks for being on. Yeah. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be on again, and I hope to do more of these in the future. Absolutely. Thanks, oh, yeah, definitely. Alrighty, folks. Thanks for tuning in. This has been episode 40 of Between Sets. Uh, you can obviously find, if you have any questions for Tim or I, obviously find our stuff in the show notes below, and I'm sure you know where it is at this point. But motorstrength.ca for all your needs. That's it, baby. That's it. Thanks for listening.